Good morning. We get to be in God's word today, we get to sing praises to his name, and we get to see four wonderful people outwardly show what they believe inwardly through the waters of baptism, and the water's currently pretty hot, so pretty excited about that as well. Woo-woo! My name's Tim Riley, I'm the lead pastor here at Church of the Valley, and we have been going through the book of John since the Eisenhower administration. But we are in John chapter 11 today, and it's nice to be with you on this cool November morning. We even gave all of you an extra hour. You're welcome. (laughs) We get to celebrate new birth in Christ today through baptism, and probably most importantly, by God's given grace, now that it's November, we can start to listen to Christmas music. Amen? (laughs) No, no. No, 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 no. I I, I can find it in scripture. Anyway, and so, (laughs) sing. Anyway, we've been studying John 11, and we are, uh, last week we studied John 11, 1 through 15, where Jesus was told that his dear friend Lazarus was sick. And even though Jesus knew that he would die, and technically at that point, when he was told that Lazarus was sick, Lazarus had already been dead, Jesus did not rush to his family's side to his, this family side that he was very close to, because this illness and this death would glorify God by making known the power and the majesty of who God is through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at one verse from last week that we studied. In verse 4 of chapter 11, it says, When he heard this, Jesus said, after he heard that, that Lazarus was sick, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It was love for the family that Jesus did not fix the situation before it happened. It was love that did not intervene and save Lazarus from dying, or the sisters, Mary and Martha, from grieving, so that they could know more of him, because this whole situation was to glorify God and to see who glory could be, how it would be revealed in Jesus. So something I want to start with is don't measure God's love for you by how much health, wealth, and comfort you have. If it were based on that, then God really didn't like the Apostle Paul because he went through a lot of hard things. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you, how much of himself he gives to you to know of him and to enjoy. That's how we measure how much God loves us. That is where we left off last week. So we're going to jump into verse 16, which normally we would have studied, but I didn't want to go two hours last week. So here we go, and I promise I won't go two hours today, hour and a half. Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is gung-ho. I don't know if that term means anything to you, but he was pretty excited. After he had heard all of this that Jesus was saying, if Jesus and the disciples had gone back towards Judea, they were worried that they would be killed. They would be martyred because Jesus had claimed that he was God. And he, Thomas, was like, yeah, let's go. Let's go die with Jesus. And it was proactive. It was willing to go with him. But honestly, it was pessimistic in the sense that they figured that it would be certain death if they went back through Judea. This is Thomas. We know Thomas in Scripture. If you've read Scripture at all, Thomas has a name. What's Thomas's name in Scripture? 
doubting Thomas. This doesn't seem like a doubting Thomas. He seems pretty excited. He's like, let's go die with him. And this is what it says at the end of the gospel in John 20, verses 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This was after Jesus' resurrection. Spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead after he dies. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, and also with you. Sorry, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, I should go to a class and find out more about this. No. What's he say? He says, my Lord, my God. Thomas worships. This doubting Thomas in this moment in John chapter 11 seemed to be full of faith, if you will, but not necessarily faith in Jesus as much as willingness to give his life for a cause. But unfortunately, he misunderstood what Jesus came to do. Verse 17 of John 11, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. As we talked about last week, Lazarus laid in the grave for four days, and this, just so we're all clear, when you've been dead for four days, there is no resuscitation that can take place. Post, you, you are starting to have things, your body is decaying at a rapid rate, and this was not at all a possible resuscitation. This would have to be a resurrection by God intervening. And Jesus had waited two days to come to the family to mourn with them. And so as we talked about last week, love was what allowed Lazarus to die. And if you weren't with us last week, I'd highly encourage you to check out the message where we talk about it on podcast or in YouTube video. Because there is this understanding that when bad things happen, God gets glory through them. And so I'd really love for more of you to understand that. Verse 18. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, this is written by a guy named John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And John writes this, and he's making known how close that this eventual miracle where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, I hope that doesn't spoil it for any of you, that how close it is to Jerusalem, how close it is to where people were saying that he was blaspheming because he claimed that he was God. Verse 19, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them, in the loss of their brother. So John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, the writer of this gospel, makes known that this family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they were prominent as many Jews from the main city started to come to be there with them and mourn with them. And it can also be noted that the proximity of where their house is, this is a dangerous environment for Jesus and his disciples. But they believed that Jesus came, or when he did come, he came to grieve with the family. And as far as everyone knew, including the disciples of Jesus, this is why Jesus was coming to this family, to grieve with them. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. When Martha heard that Jesus was on his way, she decided to go out to meet him, probably outside of the city gates, to go reach him, possibly, I would imagine, someone in a desert area where no one else was around because she wanted to get to him before any danger could 
come near him. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We often want to read tone into scripture, and we don't really know. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you could read what she just said. But this accusation that Jesus is taken by a bunch of different commentators in a bunch of different ways. But here's what I do know, is that she understood that he was Lord. That she understood that he was more than just a teacher, more than just a rabbi. And she believed that he had the power to do something that could have prevented her brother's death. But it's interesting that Martha's the one that runs to him first. And Mary stayed home. As this family was prominent, they were well known. Other scripture talks about this family in particular. In Luke chapter 10, here's where we know about Mary and Martha. In verse 38 in Luke 10, it says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they were traveling, preaching the gospel, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Verse 41, Martha, Martha. Is it ever good when someone says your name twice? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This, this passage is really just kind of making understood that they're, they're known in Scripture. Mary and Martha, these sisters are known in Scripture. But this story is often misunderstood, but we can take one specific thing from it that I want you all to see. That when it comes to learning from God, it is not about how prepared you are. Unfortunately, when we jump into the text, even as I open this scripture today, some of you are distracted. You're distracted because we're going to have baptisms, and you came because we're going to have baptisms. We're really glad that you're here, but most importantly, we really hope that you get that we're all about Jesus Christ. And the reason that the people are being baptized is not to wash away their sins. It's not so they can be saved. It's not so they can get attention for themselves. But everything that we're doing is to make known that Jesus is the Christ. And that he rose from the dead. That you can have life with him because he died on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And he proved that that, that death did not have a hold over him through his resurrection. We can get distracted from that, can't we? We spend so much time in the church talking about things that have nothing to do with the point. And so Jesus is speaking to Mary, or speaking to Martha, and she says, you're distract he says, you're distracted by other things. But here's what I know. Worship for Jesus has more to do with listening and doing what he says than just having a lot of activity. It's not about just being busy. It's not just about coming to church and saying, hey, I put in my time with God. It's about actually hearing what he says and putting it into practice for the right reasons. But these are the Martha and Mary that are the sisters to Lazarus. Scripture has talked about them. These are not people that no one knew who they were talking about. So we have the situation in John chapter 11 where Martha is the one that goes to Jesus to engage with him, to speak to him about what has taken place. And we're going to see in verse 22 that she has a pretty good understanding of who Jesus actually is. Here's what it says in verse 22. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha says, even now. 
Meaning even though Lazarus, her brother, had been dead and decomposing for four days, Martha still believed that Jesus could intervene in some way. She still believed in him. She still trusted his ability to make a supernatural impact. But it's not that she thought Jesus could or would raise him from the dead necessarily. But she thought because of his closeness to God the Father that his prayers in particular could bring some type of good out of this incredibly sad event. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus calls it. Jesus says that Lazarus will rise again, which to Martha, that actually seemed like an obvious thing. Because look at her response, verse 24. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Oh, Martha, that's pretty good theology, actually. Martha listened to her teacher, her Lord, her master, Jesus, when Jesus would teach about Job, the book of Job, chapter 19, where the book of Job says this in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Martha knew the book of Daniel that was written thousands of years before this, where Daniel writes in chapter 12, verse 2, multitudes, hundreds of years before, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. See, the belief that death is final that you just die and you're done, is biblically illiterate and a misunderstanding of how and what God actually said. See, death is the transitional moment between eternity with or without Christ. That's what death is. It's this transitional moment between eternity with or without Christ. So hear me, as we were singing Resurrecting, all of us will be resurrected. All of us will be resurrected at some point. But some of us don't want anything to do with God in this life, and some of us do, and God gives us what our heart desires. So Martha listened to Christ's teaching of the last days. She properly understood and interpreted Job and the book of Daniel. But this is not what Jesus had in mind. So look what he says. Verse 25, what I named the sermon after. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Jesus begins with calling himself the resurrection, which is making known that is what Lazarus is about to experience. Not at the end of the days, but now because Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is there. Jesus is saying to Martha, you believe that there is a great and glorious day of resurrection coming at the end of the age. You're right, but here's the mystery. I am the arrival of that day, he is implying. You thought the day would come with the Messiah, and I am the Messiah, and I have come, and I am here. What Jesus is implying is what you are expecting of, I am the inauguration of. I am here, I am the resurrection, and yet the entire human race since Adam is cursed with death. The book of Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Paul's writing, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all 
sin, did you know that there's a problem? And the problem is not the politics of the world. The problem is sin. So because we are all dead men and women walking without Christ, there must be a resurrection. There must be us being brought out of death and into life, and that only happens through the resurrection. In the book of Ephesians, which we've studied many times, Paul writes and he says, as for you, that means us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So quick question, what can a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing. And it is only through a resurrection that we can be made alive in Christ. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Those four people that are getting baptized today, they're not getting baptized for salvation. That's not what this baptism is about. It's because salvation's already come. They're already a new person. They're not a better version of who they once were. They're not an iPhone 11. They're a new creation created in Christ Jesus. And when Christ makes us alive in him, we are not the same person we once were. We are made new, not a better version of ourselves, not a zombie who's been resuscitated, but someone who has been brought into a new life, a life that Jesus Christ has gifted to us through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. That seems kind of like a parable, doesn't it? Jesus isn't just the resurrection, even though that's a huge deal. He is the life. He is the continuation of our life. He is the continuation of our spiritual life. See, Jesus doesn't just save us from hell. He sanctifies us into his image. He grows us to look more like him as we follow him and trust him. And it is completely impossible without him because he is the sustainer and he is the one that continues the growth of God through working in us to make us look more like Jesus. J.D. Greer said it this way, the cross is the measure of God's compassion and the resurrection is the measure of God's power. So you don't need to wonder if God loves you, church. If you came in here today, if you've had nothing to do with Jesus, even as a leadership team this morning, we talked about, hey, we probably have shameful things that are on our mind as we sit here and we're about to lead people this week. And yet we have a God who has entered into the fray and the Holy Spirit doesn't need to give us shame. He convicts us and what Christ has done is made it so we can live in grace because of what he's done. So you don't need to wonder if God loves you. You can look at the cross and God's sacrifice to be reminded. And you don't need to wonder if God is big enough to handle something that's going on in your life because you can look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he is the resurrection and the life. He justifies, he makes you right before God, and he sanctifies. He grows you to look more like him for whoever believes in him will live. This is not just physical, this is spiritual. Because of Jesus, we have an eternal relationship with God. We will no longer be dead people walking, even though our bodies will decay. Anyone have some decay this week? Yeah, I ran yesterday, I'm having it today. Our soul will live on eternally and we will be, have one day resurrected bodies because of what Christ has accomplished.
John Calvin, the theologian, said, The whole human race is plunged in death, and therefore no man will be a partaker of life until he is risen from the dead. Thus Christ shows that he is the commencement of life, and he afterwards adds that the continuance of life is also a work of his grace. So that prayer you prayed when you were three, but you've had nothing to do with God since, that didn't take. You just need to know that. It actually means that when he justifies you, he grows you. You start to look more like him. You start to do the things that he says. Not perfectly, thank God, but you pursue the perfect one. Verse 26, and he adds to the saying that doesn't seem to make sense at first glance, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. Jesus says, so if you believe that I am who I say that I am, if you live because of me, even though you die, you will live eternally in me. And if your life is marked and identified by who I am, what I have done, what Jesus has done, then you understand that I am the giver of life. You will never die spiritually because you are in perfect relationship with God because of Christ. And then he says, do you believe this? I always love it when Jesus asks a question because Jesus knows everything. So when he asks a question, it's not like, oh, I'm wondering what she's going to say. But he asks the question, why? To expose something in the hearer's heart. And Jesus asks this very telling question. Why? Because a testimony is what God expects of us. A testimony of proclaiming what God has done in our life is what he expects of us. You're not justified by you talking about Jesus, but if you never talk about Jesus, I'd contend you never met him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the word of God says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So why is confession of your belief so important? Because we, church, were created to bring glory to God. Did you know that? You were created in, in the messed up circumstances you might have had when you were born. You were created to bring glory to God, to put on display who God is, to point people to him. And if you're unwilling to admit, confess, or proclaim your belief that he is Lord, that life comes from him, that he is the point because he is the resurrection and the life, if you're unwilling to do that, how do we really know if you know him? If he is all of those things, how could we possibly keep our mouths shut? If Jesus has really redeemed us, how could we possibly keep that to ourselves? If a tree falls in the forest, but no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? This is rhetorical. I don't really care what your answer is. A few men that I meet with and invest in, uh, we were meeting in my office this week, and we started to have a debate on this exact uh, the, on, on the point of this, not on the answer, ironically, but the point is not in the answer. The point is in the question. Because if a person is redeemed by the master of the universe, will they tell someone? Of course. The good news of the gospel is so powerful, so life-changing, so important, that it's one that cannot be kept to oneself, lest it didn't take effect. Verse 27, 
Martha's response after being asked does she believe that he's the resurrection and the life, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What a testimony. What a clear example of what it means to believe, not just that Jesus existed. She knows Jesus exists. He's right there with her. But Martha knows who he is, and to have that belief drive who she is, that is biblical belief. I think Christian culture has spent a lot of time attempting to convince people to believe in facts rather than to proclaim what we know to be true and ask for a response. We talk about repentance a lot at Church of the Valley. Repentance means to change direction. You're going this way, and then when you have a repentant heart, you change direction, you turn this way, and you stop going the way you want to go, and you turn towards what God wants you to do. But hear me, repentance doesn't save you. Only Jesus can. But when he has, the redemptive work through you is the supernatural response to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus. Anyone sin this week? I did, and I repented, and I repent a lot because I need to. And it's not about our perfection. It's about God doing a work through us. I get, I get people confessing to me all the time about stuff going on in their lives, and I'm not stoked about it. But every once in a while, someone tells me something where they were convicted, and it's not like I'm happy that they did that, but I'm actually happy that God's doing the work in them to want to confess it, because there's power in confession. There's such power in confession. We talk a lot about repentance, and when you repent, you drop what your priority list is, and you allow Jesus to be who he really is in your life, which is Lord. So have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? We're not going to play the guitar and ask everyone to come up who hasn't done it. But are you under the accountability of God through his people? Or have you believed that you're good just because you hang out in the building of God once a week, once a year, twice a year? Those are Christers, all right? Christmas and Easter's. Just because you hang out in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. Just because you go to a Taco Bell, it doesn't make you a taco. And to truly be a follower of Jesus in Christianity in its simplest definition is simply this. It's a devoted follower of Jesus. That's what being a Christian is, a devoted follower of Jesus. Someone that says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to read your word, and there are going to be times I don't like it, but I'm going to do what you say. Not perfectly, but I'm going to pursue you. So have you proclaimed, if you've been redeemed by God, have you proclaimed this reality to anyone? Have you been baptized in front of anyone with a personal confession that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Have you shared with someone who asked what Jesus means to you and how, you, how he changed you? Have you told them or did you just play it off? Have you looked, up, have you looked for opportunities to bring up the difference that Jesus has made in your life? Why do I say this? Because time and time and time again, this is, honestly, this is what happens to Christians when they're redeemed. They just can't keep Jesus to themselves. And just as it would be a really good conclusion to come to the fact that if a tree fell in a forest and no one was around to hear it, it probably made a sound anyway, 
It's a pretty safe conclusion to come to that a person who has been resurrected, a person who has become a new creation, a person who was once blind that now can see, a person who has been redeemed by God who created the sky and the stars and the heavens, that person would make a proclamation that Jesus changed them if it actually took place. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. This is not about you making a prayerful, hey, I believe. Do you share him with others because you were created to bring glory to God and sharing him does not justify you? But keeping him to yourself says something about your relationship with him. Jesus speaks some pretty difficult things. He speaks what it means to truly follow him. But he makes this statement that shouldn't be one that as Christians, it shouldn't be one that we're just trying to do to justify ourselves. We should be doing this because the grace of God is overflowing in us. And how could we not want to talk about how great he is? I have the best job in the world. I have the best elders in the world. I have the best staff in the world. I get to do what I do in my favorite city, which I grew up in. But you know why I have the best job in the world? Because I get paid to tell people about Jesus. Are you kidding me? I get to support my family by doing what God created me to do. What's better than that, church? And so are we sharing who he is because he's changed our lives? Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Martha then goes directly to her sister in secret to tell her that Jesus, who probably has not entered the town yet, is asking for her. And the teacher is here. He's asking for you. Some translations use master rather than teacher. See, Jesus isn't just some teacher, but the teacher isn't just a master, but the master, their shepherd, their Lord, and Martha has just confessed this directly to Jesus. Verse 29, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. The Jews here are watching Mary, who's been grieving. They've noticed the abruptness that took place once Martha had told her sister Mary that Jesus was looking for her, and the Jews started to follow her. I highly doubt that this was because that the Jews assumed that Jesus was there. I highly doubt that they thought, oh, well, if we go to the tomb, maybe we'll see a resurrection. This is not what they were thinking, but Jesus knew the inquisitiveness of man. And knew that many of the Jews who had come to console and mourn with his sisters would follow Mary with her abrupt exit. See, we don't see the motives of the Jews just yet. But as we continue to read, we will. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar? Mary also had reverence for Jesus. That was more than just for a rabbi or a teacher. To fall at one's feet was reserved for royalty, which in a human sense, Jesus did not portray. He did not deserve to have her fall at his feet in a human sense, but she knew his hidden identity. 
One that Jesus had made known to her from above. Lord, if you had been here, she says, my brother would not have died. Mary's words were possibly respectful. They were similar to Martha's. But there are a misunderstanding that Jesus doesn't need to be somewhere in order for something to take place. Jesus can do what he wants wherever he is, but Jesus is omnipresent. He is everywhere. I'm grateful, though, as Mary says this, and Martha said this to Jesus, that even though they misrepresented who he is, even though they misunderstood who he is, I'm grateful that God does not expect our theology to be perfect before he saves us. But in this kindness, while I'm still seeped in sin, he intervenes. He draws me to himself. He pulls me out of what I want, and he gives me what I need most, which is him. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Many times I've read this. I've heard this passage taught so many different times. And the consensus has always been Jesus was full of grief because he lost his friend. But hear me, Jesus let him die. So I don't think that's why he's grieving here. I've heard people say he was sad just because everyone else was sad. And even though I don't think that's heresy to believe that, let's look at what is actually said. It says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This word's used a few other times in the New Testament, and each time it's more about a rebuke than it is about compassion. Did he have compassion? Absolutely. But I think we think that every time something bad happens to us, that God is this enabling, a friend, enabling friend who just feels bad with us. Jesus was grieved because Mary and Martha, even believing the right things about Jesus, believed that he didn't care about Lazarus. That he didn't care about their brother. He didn't care about his friend. Why? Because he wasn't there. And honestly, the crowd probably believed the exact same thing. So he was troubled. He was groaning, not because of death. Death doesn't surprise him, church. But by the evil that people had that would assume what they did about the God of the universe manifested in Jesus Christ, that he wasn't there with the family sooner because he didn't care. So I got a question for you. How do we misrepresent God? How do we get mad at God about things that his word never said he does? How do we question God's motives and think he should have done something a different way, and obviously he doesn't care. I don't know a more formidable experience in my life. I don't know a bigger moment in my life that changed the trajectory of who I am more than when I was eight years old and my mother passed away. I've talked about this before. Some of you know this. I, my, my mom kidnapped me, took me to Franklin, Nebraska for 11 months, changed my name and told me my dad was dead. And here's the thing, next slide. Here's my claim to fame. I was the second kid ever on a milk carton. Remember milk cartons where they put kids' faces on them? Second one. Only kid to ever be found from the milk carton. Someone was in probably a, I don't know, thrifties or whatever they had back then, and walks in, goes and gets milk, sees the picture of that super cute boy <laughs> that looks more like Boston than me. 
<laughs> and saw it and called the FBI. And then a few days later, my dad and a bunch of FBI agents come into my room while I'm sleeping, and they take me back to Los Angeles where I grew up. This was formidable for me. And my father found me and took me back to L.A., and I didn't get to see my mom for about a couple years. I was four when he found me. And when I was seven, she developed cancer. And I got to see her a little bit more regular, regularly with my stepdad, who also had some visitation rights with me. But then she passed away. And it was, for an eight-year-old, it was the most traumatizing, unbearable moment of my life. Because as an eight-year-old, she was my world. She was the most important person to me. She was my best friend. I was only, I was only eight. That's how old my third child is right now. So I didn't believe in God from that moment on. I didn't believe he existed. And if he did exist, I hated him. I remember as I grew older, I'd have arguments with God that I didn't believe in while I'd look up into the sky and I'd say, you don't exist. If you are real, why don't you show off? Why don't you show yourself as if I deserve that? Why does it seem that you're silent? If you are good, why would you let my mom die who I love so much? I'd yell at God, I'd swear at him, I'd say I hate you. And the way I'm going to hate you, God, is by not acknowledging that you exist. By being unwilling to believe in anything that my grandma or others in my life believed in. Religion was dead to me. And so God wasn't going to have me as his, is what I told him. This was my stance as a child and a teenager. I'm going to show him who I don't believe in. Well, hear me. Religion's still dead to me. But in God's infinite grace, he redeemed a wretch like me who wanted nothing to do with him, wanted nothing to do with bowing a knee to him because I believed in myself and I didn't need God is what I thought. Something changed, though. It was the resurrection of Jesus. It happened thousands of years prior to me arguing about it. But as I sat on the hood of my dad's 63 Comet convertible while he was in an IHOP in some adult meeting talking about dogs, because he showed dogs, I'm sitting on, on this, this white-ish convertible on the hood in the parking lot of IHOP in Pasadena right by the bridge, if you've ever been on the 210. It's not 210, it's the 210. And I laid on that hood and I yelled at God, and I got mad at God, and I couldn't believe that God would let my mom die. And I was like 16 at this, or 14 at this point, 13, 12. I was 12 at this point. And then someone challenged me with the resurrection of Jesus, and I started to look it up because I was like, man, that doesn't happen. Dead men tell no tales. I've been to Disneyland. <laughs> then I read this as a 19-year-old antagonistic atheist. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Real quick, um, you guys could look it up. The Bible says this. 
If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And I'm thinking, if I'm writing a book to try to get everyone to believe in it, I'm not going to tell people how to get out of believing in what I'm saying in the book. That seems stupid. So I started to look at the resurrection. I started to look at the history. I started to look at what was said about this resurrection. And I started to look at the fact that there is a gracious God who sent his son to live the life that I could not live. He died in my place. He physically rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And one day he's coming back and I've got all the hope in the world because I've got Jesus. And it was only through a personal and experiential and intimate relationship with God where God drew me to himself that I could know this. That death was defeated and life was attainable in Jesus Christ. No longer did I have to question false motives of God because he made clear that all that happens is for his glory. If God would not spare his own son on the cross, that for some reason I, who blasphemed him and swore against his name, would be redeemed by his love. It didn't seem fair. And I realized, yep, God's not fair. He sent Jesus to do for me what I could not do for myself, and I did not earn it, and that is unfair. But I don't have to worry about why things happen the way they do anymore. I just need to know that I will grow more into God's son's image as I do what he says for the right reasons. That's what I want my children to know. Today, I get to baptize my oldest daughter, Reagan. Not because we told her she had to, but because God got a hold of her heart and revealed himself to her and through his grace and mercy made known to her who he truly is, that she would bow down to him, not because mom and dad are in ministry, but because she fell in love with the God who redeemed her. Because he loves her and she loves him. That is the faith that we've passed down to Lorelai, our second daughter, who was actually the first person that I baptized at this church about a year and a half ago and who is continuing to trust Christ and follow him. That is the faith that I beg God to give to my eight-year-old daughter, Evangeline, who I just want God to reveal himself to her and so that she would understand how beautiful and awesome God is. That is the faith I continue to beg God to give to my one and only begotten son who I love and want to see take seriously who God is, that Boston would come to know who Jesus Christ is. So you and I don't need to question if God is for us. He proved it with compassion through the cross. We do not need to wonder if God's big enough and powerful enough for some circumstance that you're going through because his resurrection proved once and for all he has the power to defeat death.